This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mind Your Business on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm the senior editor of Entrepreneurship at Forbes. As usual today, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. The show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with, especially if it has something to do with hiring the right people, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 942-7866. To discuss those questions today, we have a very special guest, William Vanderblumen, who has built a really interesting search firm in Houston. William is a former pastor who started Vanderblumen Search Group, a recruiting firm that staffs churches. The company has done really well. It's learned all kinds of interesting lessons along the way, lessons about hiring and social media and culture that I believe would be of interest to businesses of all types. He's also just published a terrific book called Culture Wins that offers, and I quote, a roadmap to an irresistible workplace. Welcome to the show, William. Great to be with you, Lauren. Always a joy. Thanks for joining us. Um, Yeah. I want to get to the book in a second, but let's talk a little bit about how you uh, got into this business. Uh, Tell us, what what, what prompted you to start uh, to, to go from being a pastor to a recruiting firm. Oh, Lauren, I'd, I'd love to tell you I came up with a great strategic plan and executed it step by step, but it really wasn't that. It was uh, good fortune in the right place at the right time. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, looking back, I get a lot of calls for career advice. And I think what I didn't know I was doing, but I did instinctively, was follow momentum. And uh, I just tell that to people all the time. If you're wondering what the next steps are, look where the momentum is in your business or, or your career and follow the momentum. And so I was a pastor. Uh, I, I led churches from uh, 140 on a Sunday, which would be kind of normal in the U.S. in the Protestant world, to the last church I served. I was the lead pastor, and we had about 5,000 adults and a couple thousand kids in a school with several hundred children. And That's a big church. Kinda, a big well, organization. Big is a relative term in Texas, Lauren. I, I'm careful <laughs> to use that here, but uh, it was it was about half the size of my hometown. So that was <laughs> okay. You know, I, I was in way over my head and didn't even know it. But uh, was 31, which meant I knew everything, which was awesome. <laughs> uh, and uh, led that for a while. We had some good growth. I, I probably ticked some people off in the middle of that, um, but. But uh, went through a divorce, which I would not recommend. Uh, but that left me in a spot where I really wasn't, you know, in a spot where I needed to be a spiritual leader to people. And I stepped out of that. I had, you know, four kids, single dad. Uh, went into the oil and gas business and to, to about a Fortune 200 company. At the time, their market cap was a little larger than Starbucks, so pretty good-sized company. And uh, they put me in uh, kind of a rotational track, and I was uh, in the HR department and watched them. And during the the one year I was there, they they paid me well. They were good people. It's a great company, and I hated it. And it just – there was no momentum. What what did you hate? I felt like all of the training that I'd received over the years was being tucked away somewhere else, and I was being asked to do a job that – was tangent to everything that I'd been trained to do. Got it. And, I, you know, when I talk to people about what job should I take next or whatever, one of the pieces of advice that I've learned over the years and still learning is, you know, the best next step for you in a career is to take the job that you could only take if you'd already done all the jobs before that one. And, uh, you know, all the experience leading up to my time in oil and gas really didn't feed into the oil and gas at all. And I think I think there was just a sense of, of negligence on my part of not using what I've been trained to do. But, you know, it was a great place. Oh, the a big debt of gratitude to the company for a great time there. And, and while I was there, the CEO, who had done a really great job and been there eh, about nine years, which I guess is kind of a long tenure for a Fortune 200 company, 
he decided it was time to initiate a succession process. And within about 100 days, they found their successor. And now a decade later, uh, he's still there. So for not quite 20 years, they've had uninterrupted leadership and relative stability. And that's within the oil and gas world, which is not known for stability. <laughs> uh, Interesting. So I looked at that, and then I looked at what I had come to know as normal in the church world. And, and normal in the church world was the big church that I served here in Texas uh, took almost three years to find me. I spent not quite six years there, and then they spent two and a half years finding my successor. So in a span of, you know, 11 and a half years or so, they were, it was roughly 50 percent of the time with a pastor, 50 percent without, and everybody thought that was kind of normal. And then I look over at the oil and gas company and think 20 years of uninterrupted leadership. Why couldn't the church have a solution as elegant as what the business world has? And I just sort of started creative juices flowing in me. I started looking for mentors in the search process. I talked to people at Corn Ferry. I talked to a guy who'd been with Russell Reynolds. Uh, and eventually I came home. Adrian and I had just gotten married. We just bought a house. We're a blended family of six. I mean, it's the Brady Bunch, you know, all over. And uh, we didn't have Alice. It was just us. <laughs> it was the Brady Bunch. And uh, and I said, you know, baby, I think I'm supposed to quit my job and start something new for churches. And uh, she, she kind of laughed. I'll never forget. She looked at me and she said, that's because churches just love new ideas, right? <laughs> you know, it said, said no one ever, right? So... But that didn't but stop I, you. No. Well, you know what? She gets the credit. Uh, Adrian gets all the credit here because in our marriage, I don't know if you if this sounds familiar to you or some of your listeners, but I'm the dreamer and she's the realist. Usually there's one of each in a great marriage. And I'm the one that has the big plan and vision, and she's the one that makes sure we have money in the bank. And I'm the one who would come home and say, I need to quit my job and start something new for churches. And she's the one who would say, William, I love you. Oh gosh, your vision is so big. Now go back to work. We got to pay for this house and these children. And uh, she looked at me and she said, "Let's give it a try." And and that's when I knew this was either weird or a great plan because that's not her normal response to this kind of thing. So uh, that was uh, 2008, which was just a brilliant time to quit a stable job and start a small business. <laughs> if you think back to that far, it it really was pretty stupid idea if you look at it on paper but well you know i've uh, actually talked to a lot of people who started businesses then and, and some of them have said to me that in retrospect it actually was a good time to start the business because if you can make it then when times are tough uh you're going to be fine when the economy wow. picks up that's a great insight that's a great insight i i would look back and say our world the church world we were kind of i don't know if you know this book uh, outliers you know all these success stories which sure. are really just right place, right time. And that's where we were. The church does adapt slowly to change. And what the business world had been doing for 40 years with the executive search firms, the church just had not gotten ready for, and they were ready. And I think if we had started any time other than the Great Recession, we would have had too much work and oversold what we could have delivered. Interesting. So it almost gave us some time to kind of learn our craft or wax on, wax off, whatever metaphor you want to, you want to use, so that as the economy picked back up, it, it, uh, we were ready for the surge. I'm talking with William Vanderblumen of Vanderblumen Search Group, which specializes in staffing churches. If you have a question, uh, especially about hiring or culture, we're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So uh, there are a couple of things I'd like to ask you about. That I know that you've instituted at this uh, business of yours uh, that I think a lot of people could learn from and would find really interesting. And starting with the fact that, you know, you hear a lot of companies talk about it at, the, at their business, everybody sells. At, at your company, I believe your version of that is everybody blogs. And, and I mean everybody. Uh, why do you do that? And how did you hit on that idea? Well, I, you know, I had, uh, when I started in 2008, Twitter was just starting. Uh, Facebook had just recently come off the college campus. Uh, they didn't even know Cambridge Analytica at the time. It was that far back. <laughs> Sorry. Now, now. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it was a new time. And it was, frankly, it was kind of a land rush for blogging 
and for social media. And I didn't even realize we were in it. But I, I, like many of my fellow pastors, just love Twitter because it gives you a short, quick way to say things to people. And that led to why don't we blog? I thought pastors uh, were I, famous for not looking for short ways to saying things to, to say things to well, people. They're, they're long-winded but multi-topic. I see. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're, all the great ones I know have a little bit of what I call uh, shiny object syndrome. Uh, my physician friends call it ADD, but uh, <laughs> Twitter's, Twitter's perfect for that. Uh, so, so uh, you know, I started writing. I've been writing my whole career, and finally I could write about you know, how do you run a staff meeting? And this is stuff you do not. I went to Princeton for seminary. They taught me nothing. Fabulous school, but nothing about how to run a board meeting, how to run a staff meeting. Do you do reviews? How do you hire? How do you fire? There was such a gap in the content that was needed and what was available. And we just sort of fell into it. And I started writing and it led to people coming to us. And boy, I liked that because I hate cold calling people. I can't stand it. And, and as a former senior pastor of a large church, I hated when vendors called on me. I was just allergic to it. So the idea that I could somehow provide value to potential customers and then them come to us saying, would you help me, please, just really inspired me personally. And it got me thinking, let's, let's do content. I made a, a strategic hire that I fell into uh, early on. And it was a young woman, maybe one year out of college, uh, Holly, now Tate. Um, and she uh, came to her last interview. I just started to hear about this, this idea that I'd heard was called email 2.0, or what's now known as inbound marketing. Uh, the idea that, you know, you or provide content. Or content marketing, right? Exactly. You provide content, that is your marketing. You're providing service and a value. And uh, I was just starting to read about this and understand it. She came to our last meeting and I said, what would you do in your first hundred days? And she said, I would get to know our client base and our business and what we sell. And I would spend all those hundred days trying to talk you into buying this. And she slid a proposal in front of me for a company called HubSpot, which is an inbound and content marketing uh, software agency. Um, we ended up going that route. I couldn't write every day. It's just like, let's spread the wealth. That turned into everybody take a turn. And now, you know, 40 people later, it's actually everybody has a blog quota as part of their uh, KPIs. And if you sell all your numbers or execute all your searches, but you haven't done all your content, you're not going to get all your compensation. Uh, and and by, the, by the flip side, we reward people for content. We found some cool ways uh, through our friends at HubSpot to figure out how to find the best writers, because it's not always the head of the organization that's a great writer for your organization. So how, how do you, you say, I think you said you have 40 people, so you have 40 people blogging. How do you divide up who's writing about what? Yeah, how do you manage changes that? Every year. Changes every year. We're learning every year. And, and frankly, the world of blogging changes every year. Is it, it you, you know, back in the day, it was 100 words, no more, no less. Then it went to 600 words. Now it's like long-form content with fewer posts. And so we have our marketing team almost exclusively tied to content marketing. There's very little else that they do. And then uh, beyond the content marketing department, uh, they sit and say, okay, what are the key pain points of our potential customers? We're, we've gotten smart as we've gone. We've had good coaches uh, to develop very clear personas. So we're writing to a person, not a general audience. And we know Pastor Paul, we know what kind of car he drives. We know what keeps him up at night. We know what makes him happy. We know if he calls us looking for a new job on Monday to tell him to call back on Tuesday because you're depressed about Sunday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, just, we get all in their world and figure out what is it that they need. And then the content department within marketing tells our whole team, okay, look, here are the key uh, sessions that we need this year. In this case, this year we're doing team-based ebook writing. Uh, we have quite a bit of blog content ready to go, so we thought, why don't we produce eight really good ebooks this year? Four teams, two books per team, and they had a menu of options they could choose from. And then we we devote time to a company collaboration on what to blog about. Uh, how should we blog? It's blue sky thinking. It's really cool because some of the best writing we get might be from some of our actually is from some of our interns 
so it flattens the organization. It's not this uh, the top down says such and such. And then our marketing team takes time once a week. Uh, they go to the break room for about an hour, and they're just available to help people think through what they're blogging about and help think creatively. And that's an enormous cash outlay for me in soft costs of salaries and just time and money. How, how do you measure but, whether it's worth it? Uh, 97% of our contracts that came in last year came through content marketing. That's that, how I measure it. That sounds good. Yeah. How, yeah. How, just back to managing the the process. You say you have uh, interns blogging. I mean, how does an intern uh, know enough to be able to represent your business? Well, we do have quality controls. It's not just you know everybody writing and post it. It's not nearly as uh, egalitarian as some places that'll just let you post and then if you, they don't like it, they'll pull it down. That's a beautiful model, but ours is a little tighter control. You have to send it through marketing. They're going to proof it. Three sets of eyes are going to look at anything before it goes up. Um, but but the idea of having an you, you sound like a publishing well, company. I know, I know. But three three sets of eyes is kind of wooden. The the new idea for us though that came of uh, I've gotten to be friends with the CEO at HubSpot for whatever reason he likes us. Uh, in fact, when they did their IPO a few years back, their whole uh, how do we raise money for the IPO was. How can we show that HubSpot could work for nearly any kind of company? And Brian Halligan, the CEO, is like, you know, your company's so weird. Do you mind if we tell your story? <laughs> so they're like, sure. So one idea that he had that he passed on to us so that I'm not taking credit was, why don't you have a contest? Why don't you have everybody blog, find a common measuring stick so you can see whose blog is most popular, and then reward them with something cool? So we chose, we have a lot of frequent flyer points uh we chose to say best blog and this was years ago gets two first class tickets anywhere in the united states on on united airlines and so everybody blogged and lo and behold there were two or three people that you would not have guessed on the org chart by you know where they were sort of top versus down that were really great writers and that made us realize you know this is not about uh where you are on the org chart it's about paying attention to who knows how to write. And and since then, part of interviewing with us, Lauren, if you want to come work for us, which would be great. We would love to have you. <laughs> but we'll, we'll talk later. Come, yeah, yeah. But before you come, we need you to submit a blog. We'll give you four or five topics to choose from. And we're going to post it and see how it does. And we're that's going to be part of your interview. You actually post material from candidates before you make a decision whether to hire them or not? Absolutely. It's the last test. If you can't write, you don't belong here. Even if you're super talented, even if you're great at sales, if you can't produce content for us, you need to go be somewhere else because you'll go crazy here. That's really interesting. That Do you know of another business that does that? No, but I don't know another business that does the crazy thing we do of helping <laughs> churches find pastors. So. <laughs> well, well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about your, your hiring process then. Um, um, if yeah, I'm um, guessing you didn't know exactly how to hire people the way you do now when you started the business, tell us a little bit about what you what you learned along the way and, and what your process looks like today. You know, beyond just the writing component. I think uh, I think if there's one thing I've learned, it's that uh, I need to hire slower. And you know, it's an old axiom, but there's a reason it's an axiom. I mean, things that are true get repeated. So. The axiom is people hire too quickly and they fire too slowly. And you would think the search firm would have figured this out, but we, we've, we've found this is true even with us. Uh, we get excited about somebody or, or we need somebody fast. We haven't been good at our pipeline or uh, we, we've got a great opportunity, but not enough staff. So we, we got to get it done now. And for me, and I, I bet it's the same for many of your listeners, hiring is a venture into the unknown. You know, you, you're, I don't know this person. I don't know if they're going to fit this job. What is it going to do to our team? It's a lot of unknown. It's a lot of, frankly, it's a lot of having to deal with being afraid of the dark. And many times I see in our organization and in many of our clients, people compensate for that by going with what they know to battle all this unknown. And that means they hire somebody that, oh, a friend told me they'd be great, or 
I know somebody who might be good at this. And you don't do the thorough vetting. So if there's something I've learned as we've gone, it's that it needs to be really slow. Uh, an, another thing we've learned over the years, there, as we get bigger, this is not always as true. But nearly every time, we can teach the competency of what we do. But we cannot teach a cultural fit. And so, you know, we've gotten where unless it's a highly technical role, videographer, back-end coder, you know, this kind of thing, we say culture trumps competency every time. So our interview now is uh, oftentimes tied to how do they fit culturally more than are they competent for the skill we're hiring them for, which sounds crazy. But I think if they're, if they're a cultural fit, we can almost always teach them the competency. And I, I, I thought it was just a hypothesis, but now I've learned, and I, I never thought this would be true, but one of our very best consultants, consulting with some of the largest churches in the country about who they should hire or not, loved by our clients, has never, ever worked on a church staff. And I thought there's, there'll never come a day when we could have somebody that we raise up totally from within that has never worked on a church, but it's happened. And it's because she's a great cultural fit, and she's got high learning ability, which is part of our culture. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's caused me to interview around cultural fit as much as or maybe even more than competency. I'm talking with William Vanderblumen of Vanderblumen Search Group. If you've got a question about your hiring practices, if you're struggling to find the right people, please give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. William, going back to the uh, the hire slow, fire quickly thing, uh, when you say hire slow, obviously that doesn't mean just take your time. Um, what, 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 what do you do to slow down the process? What do you make someone go through to make sure that you're not moving too quickly? Well, one lesson I had to learn uh, in the first few years, I used to think the idea of sort of 360 hiring, that is, making sure someone has been interviewed by people on all levels of the org chart. I, I used to think that was weak leadership. Uh, in my arrogance, I thought a strong leader knows his organization and he ought to be able to hire whoever he wants and not have to consult with people below him. And, you know, what What a prideful, self-assured thing to say that's just not true. Um, I've learned that some of the best interviewing that's happened has been when we've had an intern interview a senior level candidate for our lead team which we actually did and and the interview was focused on cultural fit which the intern knew very well and was doing very very well so that it wasn't how could this kid know if this seasoned veteran is good enough uh, but I, I think uh, what did the seasoned veteran make of that well if he if he had not liked that he would not fit here because one of our, you know, parts of our DNA is it's a pretty flat organization. We're, we're always trying to push decisions as far down the org chart as possible. And if the seasoned veteran can't handle that, then that's going to be a problem. We're also really, I, I didn't realize this, but apparently we're pretty tech savvy and cloud-based before that was the thing to do. And 70% uh, of our office or so is under 35. So you get... Uh, we might hire somebody who's been a pastor for 20, 25 years that wants to now help lots of churches, and they're 50 to 55 years old. If they can't take advice from someone 30 years old, that's going to be a real problem. So let's find that out in the interview rather than once they get here. Interesting. So I think slowing it down, doing 360 interviews, interviewing while we're not officially interviewing. And, and, what does that mean? That's a weird statement, but uh, I might run it through uh, – uh, maybe I could run it through one of our cultural values. How's that? Um, we, we have a cultural value here uh, called ridiculous responsiveness. Um, by the way, back to content marketing and inbound marketing, um, uh, back when we started the firm, we being a rather ambitious word, it was Adrian – and me, and I guess you could count Moses our poodle, but that was it. <laughs> so that's, that's as we as it was. And, uh, you know, the uh, what we started is amazing. It's the first I've worked without a net. You know, if we don't kill it and drag it in the cave, we're not going to eat. And when people email you and say, would you talk to me about maybe doing some work for me, and you're working without a net, you call them quickly, right? <laughs> you, you get back to them fast. 
And the more I got back to people fast, the more I realized um, this is unusual. Everybody's like, wow, you got back to me so fast. So I just started insisting as we grew as a firm that if somebody writes in, and this was a, this was a different day than now. It's had to change a little. But if somebody writes in saying, I would like to talk to you about doing a search for us, we will personally get back to them. No auto responses within 60 seconds with as handcrafted a response as possible. Like that's the that's success. And now that we do work, like the folks in Australia keep a little different clock than us, so it doesn't always work for 60 seconds in the middle of the night. But uh, it's been remarkable how much that is ha- how much that has impacted our business. And I've, I walked around saying speed wins, get back to people fast. It, it turned into a core value that we call ridiculous responsiveness, where people don't just say, "Oh, you got back to me fast," but they say, "You're ridiculous." Why are you getting back to me? So it's dinner time. Don't you have a life? Well, how do you how do you make that happen? What is it? What does it take to make sure that you can respond within 60 seconds? It takes people who are are kind of crazy. And that's where we get to the interview process. Right. Do do you have people sitting around just waiting for those emails to come in just just to make sure? Lauren, it's not it's not that hard, (laughs) man. You can you can set VIP alerts for different types of email. And if you're using any kind of content based marketing software, it will come from one email address all of your fill out a form comes from no reply at infusionsoft or hubspot or whatever you're using hard to, uh, uh, you know any one of them and and so we just have it says a vip where it goes off and now that we're bigger it's got to be a round robin and there's a little more system to it but you know the idea was early on we're gonna be ridiculous and now that we interview uh we're gonna test for it the interview when you don't know we're testing uh i've i've, I've told this story way too many times so we can't actually do this anymore but let's say you you know we hang up and we get done with the show and and you're like william i forbes has been great but i think i do want to come help churches find their pastor we'd be thrilled right so uh we'd have you down for an interview uh we probably would have done some initial work before we'd actually buy a plane ticket and get you down here uh you come down here you interview with adrian and me and maybe you talk to jeff and we have a great time and then uh, say, hey, head on back to the city. We'll we'll see where this goes, and you figure out whether this is a fit for you, and we'll, we'll just see. There'll be another interview, at least one more, maybe more than that. And uh, then you land from Houston back in New York, and you lose an hour, so it's probably 1030, something like that. And you get a text from a weird number that you don't know. The text says something like, hey, Lauren, this is Ben from Vanderbilt. Um, I run the data department. I was out of the office when you're here today. I heard you had a great interview. Awesome, man. Hope we get to meet each other if you're here again. If you do nothing with that text, we're not going to like cut you from candidacy, right? But if you text Ben back that night, we're like, wow, Lauren is the same kind of crazy. If you text back within 60 seconds, oh my goodness, you're going to now you're in a whole different. You know, ballpark of I, I could see why if, if you tell this story you can't keep <laughs> keep doing right. this. This one's over, but <laughs> you know, ten thirty at night, crazy text. Are you going to respond or not? Some people that are really good workers would not respond well to that, and they would not survive in our company. So it's not about us being right and other people being wrong. I when I talk about our fitting our culture or fitting any culture, it's about we, all teams are crazy. They're all every team is made up of crazy people, and figuring out what our kind of crazy is and then interviewing for that kind of crazy that's what cultural fit is for us so it's, so, so there's it's a lot of talk william there's a lot of talk about people uh not wanting to have to be on call thanks to technology 24 hours a day and on you know on weekends and uh during their downtime uh it sounds to me like you might have a slightly different approach to that do you, do you want people on call all the time Well, particularly now that we're larger, back when it was small and it was just a handful of people and everybody did everything and everybody's job description was other duties as necessary, right? Uh, It was different then. Now it's a little more segmented, and that 60-second test would be much more uh, about the sales and marketing team. Uh, It might also be part of our internal culture. Um, Like if if you aren't willing to work after hours, you're not going to do well here. We work with pastors who will literally email us at 
1230 at night on Sunday after a really bad day and they had to fire three people and then getting a hold of them on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday is just not going to happen. And, and it requires some discernment. It requires knowing, you know, don't be a slave to things. It's also required us having an internal mechanism for our own communication so we know what's a level of importance, you know, what's DEFCON 1, 2, 3. Uh, so do I really need to respond to this now or later? Uh, and, and we've done that. Um, within our staff, if you get an email when you're after hours, whatever that is, because hours are different for everybody, uh, if you get an email, you need to respond within 24 hours and the very first time you're at your email. So everybody understands, like, I'm going to email you if this is something that can wait till tomorrow. Uh, if it's something that needs more immediate attention, like within the next hour or so, like finish your meal, but it's it needs to be dealt with now, uh, you're going to get a Slack. And we Slack all day, you know, the, the app that I think most of the larger companies are using now. But uh, if it's an after-hours Slack, that's a warning sign that, hey, this is really important and I need it dealt with now. But a lot of our meetings with our clients are at night because it's – search committees made up of volunteers and they might have a question in the middle of a presentation at 8:30 at night and they're on the west coast it doesn't really matter whether you <laughs> want to answer or not we have to uh, now now if you get a text from a coworker after hours that's like a hey man i got to have this now and if you get a phone call after hours from a coworker it's pick up now and, and that requires a lot of self police like you got to be careful with that and it might not be the right chain of command for every organization but for us and for now it's working and it and it's sort of alleviated the oh am i always on call no you're not always on, you are always on call but we're not going to call you unless it's important got it we need to take a quick break here when we come back we're going to talk with william vanderblumen about his book culture wins the roadmap to an irresistible workplace and we'll be taking your calls if you've got a question about your business please call us at 1-844-WHARTON that's 1-844-942-7866 you're listening to mind your business i'm lauren feldman and this is business radio powered by the warden school on sirius xm 111. you're listening to Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Here again is Lauren Feldman. Welcome back to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with William Vanderblumen, founder of Vanderblumen Search Group, which handles recruiting for religious organizations. William is the author of Culture Wins, The Roadmap to an Irresistible Workplace. And we're taking your calls at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So uh, what, what prompted you to, to write the book, William, other than um, extending your content marketing and getting an opportunity to go on radio shows and things like that? <laughs> the, the big goal was to get on Mind Your Business. Uh, well, you've accomplished that. that. Was it. So <laughs> Congratulations. That here. Yeah, that was the big goal. No, I, I, it, it is great to be here. But I, uh, I actually got talked into writing this book. Uh, this is our third book. And books are not, I don't write books because I need to, or I need to have my name on a shelf. Uh, It is sort of, for us, the pinnacle of content marketing. Uh, A lot of folks in the search business or executive search business, uh, you know, there's no barrier for entry into our industry. You just hang a shingle and say, I do search. So for us, the the But do do you have uh, competitors who focus in the area where you focus? Staffing churches? not really. We... Not really. We have uh, there are a couple of people who've tried. It's such a weird niche, and frankly, from a business mindset, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, you end up doing some searches that are might as well just be nonprofit, but uh, it, it's sort of cause based. I mean, you know, we're not a nonprofit, and uh, we've been very fortunate. But our our decision to do what we do has been based on trying to be a great company and not a huge company or a super, you know, uh, Silicon Valley high growth company. It's like, could we do a good thing and do it really, really well? And maybe if there are more competitors that do that, then great. The cause moves forward faster. But uh, uh, for now, not so much. But, But within the search industry, there's a bit of a stigma. I think search consultants are probably on the trust meter somewhere just above or below trial attorneys. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it can't be that well, bad. It's pretty bad. Uh, so, so for us, the challenge is 
how do we not be viewed as a vendor or a headhunter or a transactional person, but as a thought leader? So content marketing has been the heartbeat of the organization, and the real pinnacle of that is to write a book. And it started with a book on pastoral succession, which my mother thought she'd have to buy all 10 copies of. Um, and then we did a book for pastor search committees. And this was the first breakout from our particular niche of church work to a book that could help any business anywhere. And and I say I got talked into it. It was a uh, it, we were in a circumstance that called for it. And to kind of call back to the, the first part of the show, it was where our momentum was. Uh, back in 2010 or 11, I get might have been 12. Uh, we started to have enough people around that uh, we realized we we like working together, and we need to figure out what it is we do together that we like and protect it. And we just sort of made up a process for naming our cultural values as we went, and it and it worked. And we came out with nine values, and then. Uh, Fast forward a couple of years, and we started winning quite a few awards, and they just kind of stacked up, um, and they were largely based on our culture. We won uh, uh, sixth best place to work in Houston, and uh, you, you you likely know this. I didn't know Houston has more Fortune 500 headquarters than anywhere in the U.S. except New York City. I work for Forbes, uh, not Fortune, so I, I didn't know that, but <laughs> but I'll take your word for it. Um, but well let me let me stop you there though, because yeah. um, I, I well, my goal was to actually finish reading your book, and I must confess, um, I guess that's appropriate speaking to a former pastor that um, <laughs> I did not quite get there, but uh, but I got pretty far, and um, it's a fun read, which uh, which is interesting because there's lots of great information. It, you also tell a narrative story, and. Uh, you also acknowledge that you, when you started out, you did not have anything close to uh, a good culture. Uh, so you, you're, you're talking about winning these awards for uh, for culture. You, you weren't there initially. How did you realize you needed to uh, to change something? Well, I think what we realized was we needed to codify the best parts of what we were. You know, we got a couple of hires that were right and uh, got lucky, and then we just kind of uh, realized that through a couple of mishires, man, we're sending the wrong message. So it's time to codify this. And, and more than focusing on a strategic plan or focusing on, uh, you know, what 10-year goals, uh, we said, let's focus on what the cultural values are. And, and once those came out, and very much through just intuitive, I wonder if we could do it this way, um, we started winning awards and that led to people saying would you write about this and we were like we don't really know how we did it so we had to drop back and say <laughs> how did we do that and uh, that led to which is sort of the narrative uh read that the book is but it also led to me interviewing about 100 ceos of companies that had also won culture awards trying to see are there some common denominators are there some are there some lessons that could be learned so it's not just here's how william made it up as he went but now there are others that are doing this. And uh, well, tell us a few of the lessons. What did you learn from talking to people who run other businesses? Um, I have found in talking to people smarter than me that have studied this longer that they're investing more in culture, in hiring around culture, and in cultural events uh, than I ever thought anybody would. And when you ask smart leaders why, a pretty uniform answer comes out, and that is, return on investment. I'm like, what's the return? And, and they all say retention. And, uh, you know, having worked in a church, there were several people I didn't want to retain who I couldn't get rid of. So, so what does that mean? Retention is good. <laughs> uh, but I talked to one CEO of a software company in New York City, uh, the particular widget they sell. He has two other competitors. Uh, all three companies sell pretty much the same widget at pretty much the same price point to pretty much the same base. Uh, they all grossed just about the same last year, and his EBITDA was markedly higher than the other two. And you say, well, why? And he said, well, and I think he was a $20 million company. He spent a million dollars on culture. When you spent a million dollars on culture, you still had a higher EBITDA. And he said, yes. Well, what, what does that mean, spending a million dollars on culture? What, what was he spending a million dollars on? That means flying everybody in for retreats. That means awarding people for living out culture. That means... Uh, hard money, not just the soft money of we're having a meeting and what does this meeting cost? And uh, 
you know, I said, why does this make sense to you? And he said, well, all three of our companies for years, the tech industry is horrible about turnover. Our three companies all had about 38% annual churn. And I've got mine down to about 2%. So, you know, I got 200 employees. I would lose 76 a year. Now I'm losing four. So if I had to do 72 searches, what are you going to charge me for that, William? You know, if I had to stop and take 72 people off the train and put 72 back on, what kind of momentum do I lose? So do I spend a lot of money on fun events and gluing our team together? And all? Of course, that's a lot of money, and a lot of people would say it's a waste. But when you look at how our turnover rate dropped once I started to do that, it's, it's the reason we're the leader among the three. It's not because we have a better price point. It's not because we're selling more than the others. It's because we keep our people longer, and we don't have training costs, search costs, and lost momentum from people leaving. But but you whatever it was that reduced that turnover, you don't believe it was just about uh, events and um, you know flying people in, do you? I mean, they must be treating people in a fundamentally different way to re- have that kind of drop in turnover. I, I think that's right, and I I think uh, you know you can look up anything on the internet, and so it's true, right? But but looking at many many studies on the internet in preparation for the book. The number that kept coming up was, you know, roughly two out of three Americans hate their job. Uh, Not just mildly dislike or sort of want to get out of it or can't wait on hump day to be over, but like they hate it. And uh, if you can build a workplace that people want to stay in, you know, it, it doesn't take huge tweaks and it doesn't take tons and tons of money. It's just thinking about are there basic ways of treating people decently. We identified about eight core areas that people need to focus on. And then after you've got a handle on, are we healthy in those eight core areas? How do we identify our particular unique cultural values and begin to embed them throughout the life cycle of an employee? Then it doesn't have to be fun games. And, you know, our, our office, uh, you haven't been to the, you've been to the old office, which was kind of slumlord. Uh, but uh, Didn't look that office, bad to me. I, well, it's IKEA furniture. It's it's we don't have foosball tables and arcade games. It's it's none of the things I would think of when I hear culture awards. Uh, but it is about a, a code of decency and knowing what our particular values are and and living those out. So I I I think this is going to be more and more important in the coming fifteen twenty years as the U.S. workforce begins to see the advent of the millennials. They're already here. Some would say they're already the biggest part of the workforce. But the boomers, as everyone knows, are retiring. The people my age, you know, mid to late 40s, there aren't any of them. The birth rates just don't – there aren't – it's not like a don't want to be there. There just aren't as many that were born. And the millennials are going to dominate things. And, And this is the first generation that has grown up online. Like, you know, Bill Gates was get a computer in the house. This generation is used to having things on demand. They're used to doing their homework on a laptop. They're used to moving where they want to. And if they don't like their job, they'll just move to the next thing. There's a lot of debate about millennials. You hear that whole uh, thing about the entitled sense of entitlement come up all the time. Where, where do you stand on that? Um, you know, I try and when I when I hear about how other people are wrong and all, I, I think on my best days, I try and look in the mirror and say, what did I do to contribute to that? And I've, with all these millennials running around here, I'm not, I'm not old enough to be their parent. I'm not young enough to be their, you know, contemporary. So I've had to learn and I'm still learning what this all means. Um, the entitled piece. I don't know, Lauren, I, you know, I was on my dad, bless his heart, great man, horrible kid soccer coach. I think we won one game, (laughs) right? We just, you know, and I think a couple years I got a participation trophy, but now my kids, they get like least improved on the team trophy. And we came in ninth <laughs> place out of eight teams. Here's a trophy, you know? So there's, there's this trophy, trophy, trophy. And if you spend your entire childhood getting titles for things, guess what you grow up being, <laughs> you know, entitled. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's almost on us who raised this generation to drop back and say, all right, the same way we raised them, how can we recognize them in work? How can we recognize that it's not a personal thing? This is just what we bred. Them. It's the same deal with demanding, right? All those millennials, they're so demanding. I don't know if you've ever heard this or not. But, I've heard uh, it. Okay, so 
when I talk to a group about culture and millennials and such, I often say, how many of you are like me? My favorite time of the week was Saturday mornings growing up. And all these hands go up that are my age and older. And I don't know if you can relate to that, but Saturday morning growing up was awesome. Why? You could probably tell me. What's great about Saturday morning growing up at our age? Well, I think you're going to say cartoons. Absolutely. It's the cartoons and Ultraman was on and all the Justice League and all that. But that's the time you got to watch the cartoons. If I look at a millennial or anyone I just like not having to go to school. Well, there's that. Uh, but, but, But if I look at a millennial and say, when are the cartoons on? (laughs) <laughs> they don't even know how to process that. Like they're on whenever they want. About? Exactly. They've grown up in an on-demand world. So guess what happens if you grow up in an on-demand world? You turn out demanding. <laughs> so you know, it's 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 more about. Well, my personal experience is that they're demanding and often, and perhaps most often, in a, in a very positive way. They're not willing to put up with the stuff that shouldn't be put up with, and that my generation was, uh, I think, uh, too willing uh, to put up with. And you know, I think that's a really positive thing. That's so well said, and and I think that if folks, there there are issues. I mean, it's they're people. Millennials are people, and people are broken, and it's a broken world. So. Okay, you know, everybody's got issues, but I think if people will kind of get the chip off their shoulder about the, the particularities of the generation and look at how uh, how quick they are, they're so much faster than I, than I am. Um, I, frankly, some of our millennials, I could put them on a five-hour workday and they'd run laps around people my age and older on a 10-hour workday. They just get stuff done. So I, I, I'm not the right guy to ask for critiques <laughs> on the millennials. I, I'm pretty bullish on the generation. So we only have a little bit of time left. I want to run through a couple of things really quickly. Uh, one thing I don't want to miss in your book that I think is really strong is you, you go through a series of questions um, that a, any business owner can look at and ask themselves to help them figure out, do they have a positive culture or not? Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, two things. I, I think what I'm learning about culture is there's a baseline, just human decency, and communication and collaboration and trust in leadership. There's sort of these eight key areas that you should test your organization against to see how you're doing. That any place you go work, you need to be healthy and not toxic on. And and rather than try and run people through a punch list or whatnot, as we were writing this book, our data solutions department uh, just built a free online cultural health assessment. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's too much to offer the website. It's not. It, Please uh, do. Okay, so it is theculturetool.com. And you can go there and you can kind of take a quick assessment, what's my opinion of how it is here, and see how you stack up against a very large beta group that we ran things through. Uh, and then you can also, if you're a, a HR person or a hiring manager, or you want to send it up whatever the food chain is in your organization, the whole staff can take the thing totally free and get a free report back to just say, how are we doing in these baseline areas of cultural health? Uh, and, and then the, the second layer past baseline cultural health is, do we know who we are particularly? Do we know what our kind of crazy is? Is it ridiculous responsiveness? Is it, and, and the starting point for us in that conversation was to have an all-staff meeting and to ask a basic question and say, think of a story, right, that answers this question. When we are working at our very, very best, what do we do? that's common to us, but uncommon to the other teams around us. And uh, that'll start to identify, you know, oh, you know, we get back to people so fast, like within 60 seconds. And by the way, with content-based marketing, if you get back to people within 60 seconds, you have over a 98% chance of hearing from that customer again, potential customer. If you wait 24 hours, you have less than 1% of a chance of hearing from them again. The national average 42-hour response time. So <laughs> we, we kind of bank wow. on, get back, yeah, it's staggering. And so that's all the more reason for us to say our kind of crazy is get back to people fast. But ask that question, when we're at our best, what do we do that's common to us, that's uncommon to other teams around us? And it'll start to lift out great fun stories of wins that the company has had, which is always a good use of a meeting. 
And it'll also start to let things bubble to the top of that. This is who we are. Here's our kind of crazy. And you can start to build things around that, like your hiring process. Or for us, we, our compensation is tied to how well you're living out our cultural values. So it's, it's, uh, you can embed it all through the, the life of the employee. Do you have a favorite question that you like to hi- ask candidates before you hire them? I do. Um, I, I would probably say to you, Lauren, uh, since you're interviewing with us and you've responded to the text and now you're back for a second interview, I'd say, hey, Lauren, if you could jump back somehow and have a meeting with a 25-year-old Lauren Feldman, what do you wish you could tell him to save him some stupid tax in the next few chapters of his life? What do you know now that you wish you'd have known then? And, and what that tells me, it, it keys in on two specific areas that I think are very rare among candidates. One is self-awareness, and most of us don't have it. I'm still trying to learn it. Uh, the other is teachability. Uh, you know, the, the iPhone that I'm talking on right now is barely 10 years old. You, you try and think back to like, somebody sent me a sample DVD the other day. I don't even have anything to play it on. You know, DVD's not that old. The world's changing faster and faster and faster. And I think one of the keys to the future is agility. And so teachability, learning factor, learning ability. What would you tell the 25-year-old Lauren? If you can give me some really good answers, that shows me you're self-aware and you're teachable. And, And those are pretty irreplaceable in the future. I think I would tell myself, do not take a job unless you know you really want to do it unless you're really excited about it don't ever talk yourself into taking a job a mistake mm-hmm. i made more than once wow that's good that's really good advice so do i get the job yeah why don't we talk <laughs> do, 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 do you do searches for synagogues i should <laughs> uh, we would love to we've actually talked about it, it it's a uh, it's there isn't one out there and uh you know we would love to be doing that it's uh it would be great well let's talk william oh gosh uh william this has been great thank you so much for taking the time and joining us thank you lauren for having me it's uh really great to be a part of what you're doing love what you're doing at forbes and the way you've I just think I found a link to you through this whole idea of content and the way you leverage content there. And uh, it's a real model in a, in what appears to be an industry that could be going in a bad direction. You guys have kind of turned it in a different way. And I, it, it's so cool to see. Way to go. Well, thank you. Uh, a lot of that happened before I got there. Uh, and, and whenever we think we've got something figured out, it changes on us again. But, but we're hanging in there. Uh, William yeah. Vanderbloom, thank you for joining us. You can learn more about William at vanderblumen.com. I will spell that for you, V-A-N-D-E-R-B-L-O-E-M-E-N. You can also follow him on Twitter at W Vanderblumen, and he's also a contributor at Forbes.com. We have run out of time, but we're here live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. My thanks to Dion Simpkins, our audio engineer, and Michelle Stucker, our producer. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at L Feldman. Until next time, I'm Lauren Feldman, and this has been Mind Your Business on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.